to the blessed one, the Lord, who fully attained perfect enlightenment, to the teaching which he expounded so well, and to the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well, to these the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, where and will offerings are rightful homage. It is well for us that the Blessed One, having attained liberation, still had compassion for later generations. May these simple offerings be accepted for our long-lasting benefit and for the happiness it gives us. The Lord, the perfectly enlightened and blessed one, I render homage to the Buddha, the Blessed One. <coughs> the teachings are completely explained by him. I bow to the Dhamma. The Blessed One's disciples who have practiced well, I bow to the Lord. Now paper homage to the Buddha. Blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one, homage to the blessed, noble, and perfectly enlightened one. Now let us chant the recollection of the Buddha. Blessed One's reputation has spread as follows. He, the Blessed One, is indeed the Pure One, the perfectly enlightened One. He is impeccable in conduct and understanding. The accomplished one, the knower of the worlds, he trains perfectly those who wish to be trained. He is the teacher of gods and humans. He is awakened holy. Now let us chant the supreme praise of the Buddha. The Buddha. <coughs> 
is composed of purity, transcendental wisdom and compassion, who has enlightened the wise like the sun, awakening the lotus. I bow my head to that peaceful sheep of conquerors, the Buddha who is the safe, secure refuge of all beings, as the first object of recollection, I venerate him with bowed head. I am indeed the Buddha's servant. The Buddha is my Lord and guide. The Buddha is sorrow's destroyer, who bestows blessings on me. To the Buddha I dedicate this body and life, and in devotion I will walk the Buddha's path of awakening. For me there is no other refuge. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. By the utterance of this truth, may I grow in the Master's way. By my devotion to the Buddha and the blessing of this practice, by its power may all obstacles be overcome. By body, speech, or mind, for whatever wrong action I have committed towards the Buddha, may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted, that in future there may be restraint regarding the Buddha. Let's <coughs> chant the recollection of the Dhamma. Founded by the Blessed One, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation, leading onwards to be experienced individually by the wise. Now let's chant the Supreme. Praise of the Dhamma. It is excellent. Because it is well expounded and it can be divided into path and fruit, practice and liberation, the Dhamma holds those who uphold it from falling into delusion. I reveal the excellent teaching that which removes darkness, the Dhamma which is the supreme secure refuge of all beings, as the second object of recollection, I venerate it with bowed head. I am indeed the number servant, 
the Dhamma is my Lord and Guide, the Dhamma is sorrow's destroyer, and it bestows blessings on me. And to the Dhamma I dedicate this body and life, and in devotion I will walk. This excellent way of truth for me there is no other refuge. The Dhamma is my excellent refuge. By the utterance of this truth may I grow in the Master's way. By my devotion to the Dhamma and the blessing of this practice. By its power may all obstacles be overcome. By body, speech, and mind, for whatever wrong action I have committed towards the Dhamma, may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted, that in future there may be restraint regarding the Dhamma. <coughs> So let us chant the recollection of the Sangha. They are the blessed ones, disciples. Who have practiced well, who have practiced directly, who have practiced insightfully, those who practice with integrity. That is the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. These are the blessed ones, disciples. Such ones are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respect. They give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. Now let us chant the supreme praise of the Sangha. Lord of the Dhamma. That Sangha which has practiced well. The field of the Sangha formed of eight kinds of noble beings, guided in body and mind by excellent morality and virtue. I reveal that assembly of noble beings perfected in purity. The Sangha, which is the supreme, secure refuge of all beings, as the third object of recollection, I venerate it with bowed head. I am indeed the Sangha servant. The Sangha is my Lord and guide. The Sangha is sorrow's destroyer, and it bestows blessings on me. To the Sangha I dedicate this body and life, 
and in devotion I will walk the well-practiced way of the Sangha. For me there is no other refuge. The Sangha is my excellent refuge. By the utterance of this truth, may I grow in the Master's way. By my devotion to the Sangha and the blessing of this practice, by its power may all obstacles be overcome. By body, speech, or mind, for whatever wrong action I have committed towards the Sangha, may my acknowledgement of fault be accepted, that in future there may be restraint regarding the Sangha. Uh, tonight, I'll talk a little more about, more about um, say, the conventions and structures, or give some ideas to consider ways, livelihood, ways of living, structures to to act on us to help us uh, keep our wisdom faculties, keep our sense of right view going whether we're calm or not very calm whether we're highly concentrated or not you can see even in terms of meditation retreat then there's the the ideal standard that we all are uh, aim for, hope for, feel is the good bit. Is a time when we feel, say, peaceful, equanimous, focused on what we fully focused on what we're doing, no distractions. Um, there's a sort of pleasant kind of energy, not too much effort required, and yet it's not slack. It's sort of there's a vitality to it. It's kind of spontaneous in that we're with the new moment as it arises. And yet, at the same time, there's a certain orderliness about it. It's not just haphazard in every which way. In fact, the closer you be able to define it, the more you realize you haven't got it. It certainly, you know, the more you think about it, the more you know, one come, comes up with these kind of nice ideal standards. And that one may have one or two of those bits going for certain periods of time, you know, or, or, or perhaps, in fact, it isn't anything that we can really define, though we tend to want to define it and have ideas about it. Perhaps the part of the practice is that it's, sometimes it's quite mysterious how, you know, you're having a really difficult time. And something sort of changes and it feels okay. And it wasn't like you re- really, or you did something very simple, or you just, it just changed of its own accord. And things are okay. You don't feel like you've 
you know, you've really kind of got something or made something or developed something, just something seems to have dropped off and you, you feel okay. Feels good. And somehow, despite uh, the the tensions and the ups and downs and the something in us seems to want to keep doing it. There's a faith quality that about we're getting some kind of real deepening about of our lives. Yet it's certainly not ideal, is it? How many of you, when you, somebody's telling me today, you know, they, when they, every time they come on a retreat, they, you think of the retreat and they decide to come on one, and then, you know, a few days beforehand, you think, oh, why did I do that? Oh no, you know, the reluctance to get get to the retreat. You know, a few days of trying to get over the reluctance of get of being here and going through that, that body pain and the, the dullness and the mental thrashing around and, you know, and then sometimes just doing something like this, just really sitting with it, walking with it and eventually somehow it's shifting or dropping away or your mind clearing or seeing it with right view. And right view is actually the heart of the practice and right view shouldn't be understood as just can, you know, having a few ideas. It's, it's like right focus, you could say. It's uh, not, not an opinion view, it's a focus view, it's a way of seeing things. And I myself find, you know, when I, when I do a retreat or I teach a retreat, I quite enjoy it. The end of it, they feel, oh, that was a nice thing to do. Oh, well, I'll do another one of those. <laughs> and then, before the retreat comes, I think, why did I say I did that? <laughs> got another ten days of going there. I haven't got anything to say. I've got nothing to teach anybody. I've got no ideas. You know, and a lot of people looking miserable and thrashing around <laughs> on the floor. <laughs> why did I? What else do I do that for? I haven't got anything, I haven't got anything to tell anybody anyway, you know. I've got my own stuff to deal with. <laughs> and you get there and you have a couple of days of thinking, oh, well, I suppose I just sort of basically outline a bit about the precepts or do a bit about meditation. A few days you kind of think, well, this is kind of nice. You know, this is a good group of people, some dedication there, you know, trying. Yeah. Have some difficulties, but she's really putting her effort into it. Enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> At the end of it, you think, well, that was, that was good, it was a good thing to have done. You know? <laughs> it, was, it was really it was useful for people. It, it learned, you know, some good things happened on that retreat. And you'll do another one. <laughs> I don't mind doing that. Go through the same kind of process. Because uh, there's something rather mysterious about it, really. And, uh, and certainly, like, we can see the conventions of the meditation. You know, you come to a retreat center, you, you go through this kind of sense of discipline and do this and don't do that, and then get to the meditation hall and, you know, you sit in rows and you don't talk to each other and you sit for hours and you walk and you creep up and down in little lines. And <laughs> these are the same... And you do crazy things like trying to focus on your nose. 
or your feet, you know. <laughs> for, uh, you know, for days on end. Sometimes people do it for months. Months on end, just kind of scrutinizing the end of their nostrils. <laughs> <laughs> So this is going to be lead to, you know, some fulfilment of Panama. So the conventions and meditation treats, when you when you look at them, you step outside and you think, this is this is weird, this is crazy. <laughs> and when you're doing them, sometimes you can kind of think, what am I doing this for? You know, what's this going to do with my life? My, you know, my my problems, my Whatever. So it's, so, but then we going. We have enough basic faith in the convention. To say the convention of meditation, sitting there, watching your breath, walking up and down, standing, being silent. It seems that it works. It has. A, it works beyond its context. It works beyond the context of. You don't become someone who's an expert on breathing or. You know, understands the fine anatomy of the body and which tendons of the foot are involved with walking. That's not the point, is it? <laughs> it's not to become an expert in the convention, but to somehow you, in using the convention and applying yourself to it, then out of that sense of application to a to a discipline, to a, to a restraint, to something that you can't really have go your way. You can't really predict the results. You can't say it's like a so you can guarantee, you know, sit there and you can guarantee it'll go in a nice smooth curve ever upwards. It's generally rocky, bumpy ride. It's, it's not, so it's not something you can habituate. It's seemingly the most, most simple habit that we're doing, like sitting, sitting down, you know, what is complicated about that? Sitting down on a cushion, breathing in and out, but you can't ever be familiar with it. You can't ever habituate it. It's always going to throw up new things. You never really get it together. You can't control it. You can't get what you want out of it. You can't avoid things that you don't want in it. And so what it does, in, in basically, is it keeps spinning you out of the realm of self. And self is the structures of the, the psychological structures that, what do we mean? We're not talking about a person anymore. You know, self is not the same as the individual. We're all individuals. Self, the way I would explain it, is it's a, it's an organisational principle of the mind or the psyche or whatever that works in terms of habituating things, familiarising things, controlling things, owning things, belonging things. You know, it's a, it's a mechanism. So, self. What are, what are the fundamental instincts of self that they are, they are to, to possess? So when we're selfish, we want to possess a lot of things. To be secure, to be able to guarantee, I will be this in the future, this will happen to me in the future, this will not happen. There's security there. Our sense of self can extend beyond more just purely physical things, but also to people, to, to sense of uh, owning people uh, or belonging to, you know, being able to re- depend and rely upon, being able to guarantee things, and certainly being able to 
control. And these words may be more hard-edged. They're brief, abbreviated. Well, we don't say really own people, but we certainly can find ourselves um, expecting to be fulfilled by somebody. You know, expecting that someone else becomes a requirement for our life. I can't live my life. I need to have somebody else do things for me. Or, you know, um, therefore, in certain ways, we can have senses of ownership. My, these are my people, these are not my people. senses of some control of the ability to control what we'll do, what will happen to us, what, what, you know, so that we'll be, say, comfortable or warm or um, free from as much pain as possible, and we can guarantee our future. It's con- controlling of things. And the conventions of meditation tend to keep jarring that. And we may not really fully intellectually comprehend it, yet something in us feels it's good because out of it we don't come out lessened, we come out strangely enlarged, strangely grander, bigger, vaster, more capable of letting go of owning and controlling, less needy, able to kind of roll and flow with the bends of things, to give things up, to bear with things that are difficult, perhaps, to, um, to not be carrying around an image of ourselves in such a, such a highly defined way. We don't even own ourselves anymore. So this process of, is one which begins to, by its rid us clear of, of this, this habit, this self-view. And we can tend to live more spontaneously, more immediately. That is, when I say spontaneously, it doesn't mean that our actions always to be completely original on the external level, but that we can perhaps even approach familiar situations with an open mind and be flexible. You know, living in even within a stable home situation or job situation, developing spontaneity by by questioning one's stock reactions and learning to to perhaps relate more directly rather than in uh, habitual or stereotyped ways. And these are definitely the um, some of the advantages, some of the positive fruits one finds through meditation practice, the Dhamma practice. But as you see, the convention itself is a, it's the way of holding it that counts. You apply yourself to it, but if you try, if you apply yourself to it, trying to control, belong, own, get what you want, then it's frustrating. If you apply yourself to the convention of meditation in a self way, it's, it's extremely painful or deluding, or you have to actually kind of manipulate situations around you or, or kind of shut things down in yourself in order to be able to, to achieve the, these ideals that the self 
image projects. So, yes, meditation leads to fulfillment, it leads to flexibility, it leads to life-enhancing values, life-enriching values. But the way it leads to them is, is not what we've expected. Because it's not in terms of the whole self-view mechanism. Now the other um, major aspect of the, of the Buddhist teaching, you have this meditation, samadhi, cultivation of awareness, and uh, resulting in, in this quality of wisdom, of, of right view, of learning to, to experience the results of meditation, the results of mind training, and begin to, to piece it to, you know, to piece it together to what actually, how does it work then? You know, and you begin to see this characteristic of dukkha, of, of impermanence and of non-self. And you, you, get, you get a feeling for these, what they're about, not just as concepts or interesting metaphysical statements about the nature of reality, but as actual heart experiences that you can relate to your body, your emotions, the people around you, and so on. And this is the panya aspect, or wisdom aspect. But the other aspect is this, called the sila, or, or um, morality, or training, ways of conduct, behavioral um, aspect which is to do with our relationships and responses to, to other people, to creatures, to what we do and say. And this is another convention. And similarly to the conventions of meditation, there's a certain, uh, they go beyond what they appear to be about. We can quite easily form assumptions about the five precepts, you know, just be good, behave yourself. Um, that's it. Just like, you know, you can form assumptions about meditation until you do it. But it's just sit there and you experience the dewdrop slipping into the shining sea or, you know, the posters about meditation, there's always a bit of mist around somewhere and, and dewdrops <laughs> splashing into lakes. <laughs> you know, when they dis you know, it looks so lovely and serene, and you, you do it, and it's nothing like that at all. <laughs> Similarly, we, so we form that assumption about meditation. We form the assumption about precepts as them being, you know, like sober things that, uh, like Sunday school or thou shalt, to be good. But when you keep the precepts, it doesn't make you good any more than meditation makes you calm, peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> It's not just the kind of, you know, a goody-good sort of moralizing experience. Generally, it brings up the, the, the very things that it's, it's there to, to, um, to check. 
to make you witness. Just as meditation makes you see every, everything in in your self habits that bring that's chaotic. You know, the, the wildness of your heart, the chaos of it, which you don't see when you're able to continually establish patterns that deflect it. And in precepts, you see the the violence, the covetousness, the uh, the greed, the manipulative. Um, attitudes of self, the lying and the <laughs> and the, the manipulating things. And then you've got a standard, just as you have in the meditation, actually holds, so that those particular energies you, you don't you can't act on. It doesn't mean you can't witness them, but you don't act upon them. And gradually, as with the meditation, you know, you get you think, oh, this is making me feel bad, you know. I mean, I was a much nicer person when I could go off and have a few beers to let off steam and, you know, shoot some ducks or something. <laughs> I was a really quite, quite a peaceful guy. <laughs> and now, I, you know, this is repressing me. <laughs> thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not uh, tell lies, thou shalt not drink or whatever. But they're not, they're, they're not thou shalt not. They're one undertakes a training to refrain from. You know, we're, trying to, we're, we're applying ourselves. We're not promising, but we're applying ourselves to undertake that training. And the training of Buddhism is a wisdom training. It's a reflection training. It's a way of doing, applying a convention so you can witness something. And you can witness that as seemingly yourself but finally not yourself. Finally as something that changes, as something just habituated. And the, the theme of the precepts, is a very, very simple precepts actually, but the theme of them is, is when you train yourself and you witness the things in you that lead towards uh, unwholesomeness, like uh, violence and uh, covetousness and uh, sexual uh, using people sexually I don't mean having sexual relationships but actually you know using a person as an object um, and the ways in which the, how our speech can be a, uh, a pretty direct representation of our mind and uh, have all sorts of ways of subtly pressurizing, you know, putting people down, pushing this away, deflecting attention, uh, smoke screens, um, power trips, all kinds of little things come up that, that we often don't even realize we're doing. Uh, and when you're actually trying to set up a standard of watchfulness about speech then, and, and training yourself in this way, that you become more aware of it. How, how habituated one has become and probably in an ordinary society people more or less do this all the time and, and are used to it you don't expect people to be honest really honest if they, if they, if they say they're being honest you think uh-huh he's trying to prove he's honest the one who is pulling on me he's <laughs> coming on with the honesty line it means he's about to sell me something or wants a favour or whatever you know 
So even honesty and, 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 and innocence become a kind of uh, gimmicks, can become this way. And yet, um, there's also innocent, there is, as we, as when we're interested in Dharma and we're trying to realize truth, there is a, a wish to, to, to really get straight you know, and, and not, and cut out these, be aware of these tendencies and, and, and refrain from them and, and the, uh, perhaps the courage to, 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 to try it, you know. What's it like if you actually are, if your speech actually is right, you know? If you're just saying the way it is, and in your mind you're using speech to communicate rather than to, say, convince or control. So that they say the cultivation of right speech is that one, through this refraining from, that one becomes someone who is... Uh, who brings harmony, who, who's someone who helps to reconcile rather than create differences. Someone who, who says things that are to the point and, and useful and courteous and that delight. You know. So that uh, right speech, for example, occurs in right speech and in the, this practice we're beginning to experience a sense of Relationship, Dhamma relationship, which means instead of relationship where I impose on you, or you impose on me, or I impose on you to this extent and let you impose on me to that extent, we make kind of deals, you know, something like that. There's, there's some that, so that we can sometimes we can be as self mechanisms can find it ways we can mesh you know we sort of I give you this you give me that kind of thing which is agreeable at least and uh, harmonious but also to is it possible to actually you know get beyond that and which is uh, Again, you know, slightly, slightly precarious, because you just we don't know. As with the meditation, you, know, you don't you can't really guarantee it, but something when you wants to just go beyond and uh, trust it, and in uh, say in these precepts create relationships where we, we know we're, we're abandoning the means by which we uh, impose ourselves control demand, possess by um, acts of, of, of uh, violence, of stealing and of, of, of uh, harmful speech intoxication of course is the way in which we, you know, is, is a kind of control mechanism whereby you can just wipe out the sense of responsibility. That annoying thing <laughs> gets in the way. <laughs> keeps, keeps you awake, you know, it doesn't blot it out. If you, when you're more, when you're 
more like attentive to really watching the, the mind and its patterns and its habits, then you can see like, like the, 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 the thing that really blocks or that, that shuts off conscience. I can see that ar- arise in the mind. And what, it, what it comes up in, how it affects my mind or the way I would describe it, something comes up, says, oh, don't bother with that. It doesn't matter. Push it aside. Or everybody does that. Or, you know, it, it, it kind of it says, "Don't look at this too closely." It's, you know, it's all right. Dismiss. There's something comes up and suppresses attention. Ah, oh, it's too much hassle. I don't want to bother right now. I don't think about it right now. It's too difficult, or it doesn't matter anyway. Or why bother with details? This thing comes up. It's really got some, some line, but the message is don't look <laughs> that's, that's the message, don't, don't watch this this is ha- happening behind your back you know? so that kind of thing and so you know, it's not moralising in terms of, um, of punishment of what anybody else thinks or whether anybody else cares or not or whether any, does anybody else any harm, you know. Let's look at it very directly, you know. What is it in my mind that comes up and says, don't watch, it doesn't matter, don't look at this, smoke screens. That, that is not, you know, it's not right, is it? And with, with uh, say, with moral conventions, then then one way in which we avoid that is we don't look at the, at the point. We tend to say things like, well, you know, you, you've got to kill beetles, otherwise there won't be enough potatoes. <coughs> right, well, that's true. It's, you know, it's true. Uh, you know, that kind of thing. So, in a way, you're not, one isn't really looking at the, at the, at the point point is, what's happening in, in the mind? And these, these uh, the arguments and the reasons are generally have validity to them, have uh, quite logical, quite reasonable, make a lot of sense. But what they do is they pull your attention out towards, away from the direct experience of what's happening in your heart and the mind, onto a level of, say, what's more abstract. You know, like what's happening in the world is we need to do this or we can't do that. Or, you know, the world out there. And one's, one disappears. One's, one's personal experience right now disappears out of context. It's not, what do I do now? It's what needs to be done, theoretically. It's not what's happening in my mind now, it's what, what works or what's good or what, you know, what we refer to an abstract rather than direct. And this is a dangerous habit. Human beings do this a lot and it's, it's a dangerous habit. As you, if you, you know, you just review history, uh, the way in which uh, uh, human beings find very good reasons to justify incredible acts of Genocide, massacre, devastation, uh, pollution, corruption, 
um, crusades, all about you know, killing, <laughs> power, control, getting mine, making sure my, mine, my tribe, my lot are okay and, and nobody else counts. And then these kind of theories about it. Divine right, manifest destiny, balance of power, you know, cis democracy, uh, communism, you know, these kind of out there, aren't they? These abstract things, and, and they're all, there's a, there's a reality to them and a validity to them. But just actually to, to witness how one's sense of responsibility gets deflected onto to a sphere that you have no way of really having any say in. So that the, an average person at that level thinks, well, I, what can I do? I'm just one in 100 million people and it's up to maybe the politicians or the powers or the forces of history or whatever. Someone feels basically not connected to one's life. We, we, we lose it, we hand it over. We say, I, don't, I have no responsibility. I just do my duty. So, but the aim of the precepts is not to create an abstract set of, of, of duties or principles or ideolo- ideological standards that you, you will stand for and fight for and die for <laughs> or condemn people for. You know. It's, it's to, to witness, it's a personal commitment, a personal reason of liberation. And I don't know how to, I don't know how to run the world or the planet, or I, don't, I don't know how to do that. But maybe if there was more sense of how do, you, how do you work with the mind, then perhaps the other things might kind of fall into shape a little bit better. So in, in Buddha Dhamma, we there aren't kind of great, you know, ideological standards of how to create proper society or, you know, deal with these social issues. They're all dealing with the mind. From the fundamental premise that just as uh, the pain and, and, and hurt that people do to each other comes from the mind, comes from fear, comes from greed, comes from confusion, comes from bitterness, comes from these things, then also the skillfulness can only come from the mind. The helping, the loving, the, the generosity, the caring, the forgiving. And if we were actually in touch with this, then surely, just as we have the power to, to do so much uh, destruction, then we, then we also have the power to do good. We can send people up into the, into the moon, maybe we could actually you know, apply that with tremendous power and intelligence. But perhaps this is beyond the point of this evening's talk. point is to really look personally as a, as a contemplative, as someone who, who's meditating, as someone who's actually trying to feel right in themselves and, and stay with it 
at, say, at what, what goes wrong. And I've explained this in different ways of this sense of, of, of self, this habituating mechanism, this me- mechanism of, of need and want, this mechanism that tends to want to control and have things go according to a preconceived image or notion of what's pleasant or what's painful. So we tend towards habits. Even though actually the pleasurability of that is dulled just because of habit. Something in us doesn't want to snap out of it because it's like you know, it's like getting up out of bed in the morning. There's a tendency towards that which is requires least disturbance, being disturbed the least. And that's what my mind will do, by default, if you like. So, being uh, recognizing this and sort of getting some kind of feeling for it, one realizes the need to have some kind of conventions that will keep pulling you out. Like the convention of meditation and the sense of you do it every day, you know, you get up in the morning and get there, and you do it in the evening and you get there. And then living under the precepts, you know, whether they a bit inconvenient when you're, you know, with friends or something, you don't want to drink. Or you have to be honest at work. (laughs) (laughs) Developing the conventions, now the See, what the life that the Buddha lived himself, and all the training rules, which is what really makes up the life of a a gone forth person, monk, or we call them monks and nuns, um, is is set up in this way to create a kind of a context that that keeps cutting away. The possibility of the habits of self, and it's important to recognise this because, like any other convention, you can see it and think you understand it. Just like you know, you see a poster of meditators and you think it's all right, just sit there and be serene, and you know, it's, everything's quiet and peaceful. And then you think about the precept, and it's all about moral rectitude and being really sober and and uh, like some kind of cleric. And then you look at monks and nuns, you think, oh, it's about being really righteous or totally pure-minded or, you know, kind of these abstract notions about it. People who don't have powerful feelings, who are kind of just into scriptures and calligraphy or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Making pots. Harmless, cute. (laughs) But a bit, you know, a bit out of it, really. Not living real lives, not having any kind of emotional relationships or anything like that. But this is is totally inaccurate. (laughs) 
and mostly people who have that, who become monks with that idea, <laughs> they actually make it <laughs> that far, you know, tend to leave or, or try to find a place where they can actually control it all to be that way. But if you, one does live a, in a way that, the, that represents the, the way it was lived in the time of the Buddha, the mendicancy is a, and, is a, and community are exceptionally powerful and painful at times and joyful at times. Non-self experiences. A mendicancy isn't just like being a, a parasite who's too lazy to work. <laughs> <laughs> so I go around, you know, bludging off people, demanding, you know, you should feed me, you give me, you feed me, this kind of thing. And community isn't just the club where we all get on with each other and it's all swinging and happy. <laughs> if you lived in communities, you know what it's like. But then mendicancy is a, 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 a kind of convention of, of powerlessness, of giving up control, of insecurity, and of trying to really keep developing and, and pushing yourself into insecurity. Not having, like not having money, not, you, not even able to use it if people wanted to give it to you. Uh, it's, it's a very powerful experience in a world that's run, on, run with money. And it's inconvenient. And it's, uh, you know, you, do, you don't, don't really know what's going what's gonna to come up, what's going to happen. And it means, of course, that uh, you can't go where you want. You go only where somebody is interested enough to want to make it possible by, you know, arranging it for you. It's not that you kind of say, I want to go here, now you arrange it. You know, the, the mendicant, you have to give up that. Choosing, being able to determine in that way. So that's, what do you think that feels like? You feel like, oh great, you know, whatever I want, snap my fingers and somebody will do it for me. And do you think you'd like to live, you do think you'd like to live like that? Do you think you'd like, to, even if that was possible, what do you think that would make you feel like? You feel good if you were just some, somebody, you know, who, who lazed around and had people do things for them? What do you think that would feel like? Pretty unbearable, isn't it? But the whole, uh, I found myself that ref just when I was living in Thailand, just starting to live as a, as a, as a bhikkhu, you get up in the morning you and you'd be meditating, and meditation is pretty rubbish. And, you know, you try, but you're falling asleep, and you get all kinds of crazy stuff in your mind. You go out on the street with your arms bowed, and it's dark, you're just coming up dawn, and feet, bare feet, and you're going on this rough road and getting your feet hurt and feeling cold and bleary and you're struggling along. And then there's somebody with a bowl of rice who uh, looks up, sees you coming and then makes this gesture of Angeline. You, they go, you go over and they just put this rice in your bowl and, and then you walk off. They don't, they don't say thank you, they don't say nice day, isn't it? There's no communication. It's just that, you know. and they do. The, and the next 
monk or nun comes along and do the same to them. They haven't thought, they haven't got there just for you because you're so wonderful. <laughs> they do any anybody, you know, and uh, at first you can feel incredibly so grateful. You know, these people are. I've got to practice to make myself worthy of this. I've really got to practice to, you know, people are giving me alms food. They don't know they've got much money and they're feeding me. I'm not giving them anything back in return. I should get my act together. So you get that kind of exhortation happening to really, you know, be worthy. That's very powerful. And after a while, you can go down the road and you start to think, I don't think that monk's worthy of offering. It's not as worthy as I am. <laughs> these lay people, some of these are really deluded. Fancy giving him alms food, not like, you know, not like me, I'm worthy of alms. <laughs> That's pretty ugly too. So that it keeps, you know, you see these things in your mind, your tendency to, to form opinions, think you deserve it, think you don't deserve it, you know, and then, it, then even worse, you know, you go down the street and think, oh, rice, I'm fed up with rice, I don't want to put rice in my bowl, I have to carry it all that way, you got anything more interesting? <laughs> <laughs> so how it changes, you know, from the sense of overwhelming gratitude to feeling you deserve it, to feeling they're not, they're not good enough, <laughs> they're not giving you things you want. <laughs> Don't bother me with your crummy rice. It's too heavy for me to carry. <laughs> this, is what it, this is what it's like being a mendicant. You know? Just like, you know, what it's like being a meditator. It's not like just sitting there and being totally serene, is it? It's, it's all the kind of cunning, I don't want to bother, how can I get out of this? I'm, you know, I'm really doing well, I'm useless. It's all that sort of stuff. It's exactly the same. Maybe it's a mendicant, but then you you actually got a way of, you know, you've got something that contains you. You go and you do it, and you watch this stuff, and you watch the self-view coming up this way, that way, this way, that way, and eventually it kind of peters out. And then there's just the walking and the, I don't know why. It's but, And then you realize that the people who are, are giving are going through their stuff. You know, and they're coming to a point of, I don't know why either. <laughs> but it's a good thing to do. Give somebody some food, there's nothing wrong with that. You know, whether they deserve it or whatever, to give somebody some food is not a, rot, is not a harmful act. It's a good thing to do. So I'll do good. You know? It's not enough for me to know how good and whether they deserve it or how good I'm, whether I'm making merit out of it or not. You know? So it does, you know, you, you kind of you go through this and you come to a point of just, it's good to be powerless and it's good to uh, be generous. It's good to have that sense of humility and, you know, because it does. You can imagine, take something to, to just go out and with an empty bowl and, and, and be manifesting your needfulness. It's embarrassing. When I was doing this in India, it's, it's very, very poignant, you know, because you know, I made a point of determining to do that when I was walking, when I was on pilgrimage in India, determining to do it. You know, 
And then you can suddenly your mind can think, you know, these people haven't got very much, you know. And I mean, I could always, if I really needed it, you know, I'm bound to find somebody who'd get me on a train. I could, you know, I could get to my embassy and they'd fly me back or whatever, you know. Nice monastery. And these people haven't got very much at all. But you don't ask. You don't say, hey, you give me some food. And I was noticing, actually, you know, just doing this, the sense of, of, of personal nakedness. You know, here am I, sticking out like a sore thumb. Big, white, bald thing. <laughs> <laughs> Tall, angular, bald thing with brown robes on. When everybody else is small and dusky and fits in, you know, and it's a great clunking thing. <laughs> kind of embarrassed and and uh, and then thinking mind like, like you come up with a thinking well I, I certainly don't want to demand anything from these people so so the tendency is that you kind of you sort of walk around very surreptitiously because you because you just can't bear the idea of putting any pressure on anybody and then I'd find that you know that actually what would happen would be that people actually come after me and say stop, stop. Yeah. And then put some put a little you know, a little bit of rice in the bowl. Yeah. Or with a with a one of these flatbread chapatis. You know. One of the most moving experiences I had when I was in Bodhagaya and I walked out of the village and down the river away and there was this, this very poor settlement, the houses made out of mud and just these very narrow little windy paths. And I just walk around because uh, in some way doing this then generally what you set the mind into is the feeling of trying to spread metta. Just walk around and be peaceful and be a peaceful presence and just spread that around. And I just thought I'd walk through this little narrow little village and it's very poor. And you walk along and you see there's, there's old people and there's children. And they, they say, stop, stop. And you don't want to even be noticed because you don't want to put any, impose upon people. And they actually ask you to stop. And a little child comes running up with a, with a, a you know, piece of bread. And the eyes just sparkling with joy to put this bread in your bowl. You know, and that face... With a big grin on it. Because you realise that everybody loves to give. Even if you're poor, that what makes you rich is the ability to freely give what you, when you want to. That's what makes you into a rich person. And you can, you know, if you've got three biscuits and you, you give a quarter of a biscuit, then you're a rich person, aren't you? Because you're—that's what makes you wealthy, and that's what. What is life for? But for joy. So I mean, these kind of things are. One does see the validity of them, the the meaningfulness of them. Such a convention, because it it, if it's properly practiced and authentically practiced, it it takes us out of the realm of of self of you deserve this, I owe you that, what do you need out of me, 
you should do this for me, into a place of, of where we just try to act from what seems best in us, with no, no pressure on it. And uh, so this is, say, mendicancy you know, for, a, for, a, for a, a gone forth person. Community is an interesting one. You know, what, what it takes to live with other, other humans. And we can notice in that uh, when we're, we're watchful, we, we can witness some of our ways of, of maybe shutting people down or you know, putting things over on people or getting our way to, with people or, you know, the kind of stuff that we, we gradually pick up through life. And, uh, you know, this is certainly an area that one wants to acknowledge in oneself and be able to, to direct and, and approach and, you know, realistically work with. Because it, you can't expect to start off snowy white pure. You know, you've got to acknowledge the, the activities that have, that, have been, that have been conditioned in. Mm-hmm. And then really practice with um, getting past them. And community is a place of a relationship with other people. One, two, five, however it is, is a place where we we can operate in terms of self, and we can maybe get by in terms of self. But then we can rise up to transcendence with it. It's convention. by being prepared to let somebody in. Um, the, there's a, the Buddha gave a very powerful teaching, or very powerful reminder on this. He called it the quality of being able to remind each other, to, to bring to each other's notice when we're going off. Habits that we have. Being able to, to say know, let's talk about this, and to, to remind each other. And he said there are different kinds of disciples. Some, just the hint, they pick it up. You know? Just the ma- vaguest hint, they, oh, you're right, they pick it up. So this is, you know, these are like the, the really people who are very finely attuned. Other people, you know, you've got a hint and actually, you know, like point it out. <laughs> and then they go, oh, oh yeah, right, okay, <laughs> you've got it. Another person, you've got to, you know, point it out quite, quite to the point and, and really make your point quite clearly and strongly. Another, another kind of person, you know, you've actually got to, to, to uh, maybe get, a, you know, do it a lot often and uh, in, uh, in, in, in very you know, very clear ways. He said, then there's the, he said, then there's the kind of person, he said, you just, you just, you just kill, kill them. <laughs> so then some of my disciples, well, I just decide to kill them. <laughs> and the, the person is asking, you kill your disciples? I mean, you're a Buddha and you kill people? He said, yes, I, I, I destroy them. And how I destroy them is, I don't bother to remind them. I don't bother to admonish them. I don't, don't bother anymore. And this is what we call destruction, he said. 
that when your fellow spiritual companions consider they can't be bothered to tell you anymore, then this is, the, this is death, this is destruction in the spiritual life. It's a very powerful thing to say. Because you, you've got no... How, how can you see? You know, you know how complex, how programmed the system is that, you've, that has constructed it, your, your sense of self. How can you actually... Can you really feel you're seeing all around it? I mean, when you meditate. Yeah, but what an advantage. Why, why did the... Why did the Buddha have or create communal life from what had not been communal, just people drifting around in odds ones and twos? Why did he actually make it into an order? Because then you, you know, for this occasion of um, of relating to each other, of having to look after each other, of having to say serve each other and bow to each other and support each other and remind each other. You know, you get with this, again, with this kind of relationship life, you know, you go through the patterns of, say, trying to Im- impress people or, or you know, get your friends together, get your kind of gang against them, and all the, these kind of things. Or, I don't want to know anybody, I'm not here to be part of some group, I'm here to practice on my own, you know. <laughs> I've got to do my practice now, leave me alone. <laughs> All the all the stuff <laughs> until you eventually you, you know you, you something in, you begin to get past it, and it is it's it's sometimes it's painful because it, it, it goes against the self the sense of self. But that's what we're that's what we're here for. That's what at least this is the highest aspiration. Sometimes we're here for it, sometimes we're not. <laughs> but that's the high, that's the liberation aspiration. And if we begin to, say, consciously work you know, against these the habits, recognize and don't underestimate them. Don't underestimate the, the plausibility of habits the reasonableness of habits, the profound dialogues that, that the habit mind can set up, which you've probably heard a few of them in this retreat. Oh, I don't need to do this right now, I need to... You know, <laughs> you know you don't underestimate the nature of, of Mara, of the deluder. Then you, you see one has to keep going into the area of, of not control and not security and that can be uncomfortable but this is what uh, brings us to our, to the joy to the to the to the peace to the fulfillment to the, the spaciousness not having anything to lose or defend or acquire This is what conventions, training conventions are about. Precepts, meditation, uh, relationships. Mm. 
and uh, this kind of understanding is is important to, to hear and, and consider because it, it's the eightfold path and it's called uh, sila samadhi panya for a very good very good reason and it's 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 led by right view rather than by blissful experiences or by powerful logic it's right focus is the beginning and the end of the of the dhamma practice and really you know check it out these are only there's only me talking check it out and uh, consider it look, look at the Look at the con- the convictions and the persuasions. You know, don't when just look at that in us which says which says that's right. Don't bother with it. I got that sorted out. Don't bother. You know, look at that thing that get that just as with morality that suppresses that says don't don't watch, don't look. You know, because uh, you know, I I can see that uh, in its harmful aspects when it's related to things you know to do with 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 moral standards. Also look at it in terms of you know that that action, that voice that's it, that in us that says, oh, "I've got this figured out," or "I don't need that," or "I can't be bothered," or "You don't need to do that," or oh, "I forgot that I've figured out." You know, it says it's basically saying, "Don't look at this." <laughs> that's why you should. That's why you should look at it when it's awkward or embarrassing or can't be bothered. You know, these are all the smoke screens. I've seen this in the, my my mind. It comes up with the views and opinions about Buddhism and Dhamma and meditation and what I need. I need to practice on my own. Didn't come here to be part of some club. I'm not into this um, psychotherapy session. I'm just here to practice samadhi. You know. Means don't look, don't look. <laughs> you get kind of things, you know, and you come with all various views, and they're very, they're, the passion of them is the, is the giveaway, you know. <laughs> There's always the hiding something. Because truth doesn't have to be believed in, or, or you know, passionately held. It, if it's truth, it's truth. We've got nothing to lose by, by watching, by being aware of things. And so that, that's the, this is the, what Dhamma is about. You know, we look at what, ask ourselves, what do we have to lose, realistically? You know? The fear of, well, I might, you know, might be tired, or I might be, I might be blamed, or I might be made uncomfortable, or I might be left out, or I might be alone, or I might be thought of in a funny way, or I might be, you know, all these little things that, that, that uh, I might, might happen to me. <laughs> it's so important <laughs> that nothing uncomfortable ever happens to me. <laughs> you know, I don't want to live like that. So, but then realizing that though one part of one's mind does want to, doesn't want to live like that, there's a strong habit that does. 
want to live like that. So that you know, we the discipline, our dedication, our commitment is ex- can express itself by establishing conventions within our lives that we keep having to be responsible to, keep having to be accountable to, to own up and uh, learn and realize that when we let go you don't get hurt. meditation this is the uh, the last night of this particular retreat then if I may just uh, personally again as I was the retreats now realize why it was a good idea to come here (laughs) 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 and uh, you know feel that uh, I do enjoy the to this, you know, enjoy the sense of the individuality of people, uh, honesty, and dedication, and uh, it's a very very good thing to see happening. So many people being prepared to you know make that effort and and not just uh, fall short by buying into some kind of idea or theory really being able to practice is a tremendous tremendous benefit, tremendous inspiration that uh, one feels is is something very good is happening in humans despite all the horrible things we can see there's something also very good happening and I think you know what 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 is coming what is being done to places like this by people like yourselves is is incredibly valuable. So I would, uh, however, you know, the results, what the assumptions one can make about how good your retreat's been or not been or whatever, it's better to just, you know, to, to not, just trust it. Trust yourself, trust your practice, keep going. Doing the right thing. <laughs> 